This is the Auto Supply Chain Profits Podcast, where you'll hear from experts of all facets of supply chain in the auto industry to help you prepare for the future. I'm Jan Griffiths, your co-host and producer. I'm Terry Onika, your podcast co-host. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Auto Supply Chain Profits Podcast. Let's check in with my co-host, Terry Onika. What trouble have you been getting into lately, Terry? Actually, yesterday, I had such a wonderful day. I'm a part of the Women Inspiring Success and Empowerment team at QAD. And our goal is really to go out there and inspire people and the next generation into careers in manufacturing. So yesterday, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, And we were at Companion Bakery, and we had the high school students from Galaxy High School come in, and we did a factory tour, and we showed them how they made bread at the factory. And I tell you, that factory was amazing. The CEO there has just an amazing culture. Everybody on that line was so proud of what they did, and they explained their background and how they got there. And it was just wonderful. And you know, at the end of the day, I thought we all need to share our stories more because a lot of people look at you and think, oh, look at where you're at. But they don't know your journey, that that you're just like them. And at the end, we had so many students coming up to us saying they were very interested in the technology because we showed Red Zone. They're a very big user of Red Zone. And it was just an amazing day. I just loved it. Yeah. That's great. I love it when we can inspire others into this wonderful industry of ours, into the fabulous industry of our beloved automotive industry. Exactly. Well, I will tell you, I am still working on the book. And this book, I love it. I love how it's coming together. But Terry, I don't even want to tell you how many iterations we've gone through for the title. Oh, no. And also for the cover art. But it's happening and we have a launch date. The book will be out March 7th. So look out. I can't wait. Yeah, thank you. But one thing that I've been intrigued with lately is the failure of EVs due to this frigid weather. You know, the the news coverage that's been happening because uh, the chargers aren't working, the cars are not holding their charge. So many problems. And that's a great intro for our next guests because we are going through a massive transition in this industry and there are problems. Now, frigid cold temperatures is one thing, but the other thing that we're all concerned about is battery setting on fire. That's very, very real. And our guests today have a solution. Yay! That might be a huge, massive statement to make, but by their own admission, they could be the next unicorn in the space of battery technology. And I love their website. It says, option is power and power needs option. ZNL Energy brings power options to the market. Oh, I absolutely love that. And with us today, we have Benjamin Furstad and Jan Borg-Sagmo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. We are very excited to be talking to a startup in this space and a startup that could well be the next unicorn. And we want to understand more about the technology, we want you to explain to us in simple terms, please, what this technology is and what it does. But then we really want to get into the challenges that you have 
as a technology startup. So let's start with you, Jan. Go ahead, tell us a little bit about this product. Yes, so actually what you do have produced is porous separator because you have a plus and minus side in batteries and then you have this separator that makes sure that you don't short circuit these batteries. So back in 2012, our inventor and founders of Satinal Energy, they started developing a dry electron manufacturing methods for zinc ion batteries. Even though uh, zinc ion batteries is maybe the, the uh, long-lived battery technologies from Alexander Volta back in the 1900s, it has issue with the extreme thermal runway and then drift formation, basically that the, the battery short circuiting. So they saw that they needed to, to, instead of using their own conventional separators, they had to manufacture their own. So that's what they started. And in 2019, they got like this Eureka moment. This is really, really cool. We need to commercialize this and we need to talk to somebody that has doing commercialization before. And that's when me and a guy called Marcus and Dog came into the discussions with this company. In the battery industry, there's in the battery chemistry, you have the plus and the minus, and you have this battery acid that transport these ions through the, the batteries. And our uh, separator is, since it's non-porous, we are transporting these ions through something called diffusions. It's like if you have a helium balloon and you just let it stand there for a while, the air comes into the balloon and the uh, helium goes out. Even though the balloon seems like it's totally airtight, but it's not, that's the diffusion part that happens. And that, of course, if we have that in the battery, you don't have this dendrite formation or these issues because the ions is, can go through this separated because of this crystalline structure, meaning that you have a very good transport of these ions through the whole separate and not only just the small parts in the, because you can't really decide where the pores are on the conventional separator because when you produce it, they, it's like this stretching in it and then you get these pores and you can't evenly decide where these pores are. So that's why you get concentration of this pore somewhere and somewhere it's not. That's basically what we're doing. Very interesting. Now, Benjamin, you are the CEO of the company. What's the mission of this company? The mission started out to uh, to really commercialize next generation battery technology, right, and, and get it into the market. Started out with an idea of getting uh, cheaper energy storage available to the market through the zinc ion battery technology that we have in house. Um, we quickly realized that the separator technology may maybe have an even larger market adoption potential than what the zinc ion battery technology alone has. So our goal is to get the separator out on the market and, and make safer batteries, basically. We see that there's a lot of fuss around the world about batteries catching fire. There's been a lot of incidents in the past. Uh, you have a couple of uh, telephones or cell phones that uh, have been consistently catching fire. There's been large energy storage uh, plants that have caught on fire. You have ships going over the Atlantic full of electric vehicles that has caught on fire. And the, the issue with fires in batteries is that once they start, it's kind of hard to stop them from burning. Uh, and it's the heat that they're propagating is is easily starting fires uh, when you, you have battery cells, healthy, good battery cells next to them will catch on fire just as a, through a propagation um, process. So what we want to get out on the market and, and really help the industry with the adoption of is with our technology, you would be 
reducing or close to limiting the the hazards of, of fire in, in batteries. Now, intrinsically, this uh, this gives you better safety uh, just out of the box, but it can also give you cost benefits on on spending capex on fire safety systems uh, related to batteries. Uh, you can reduce the some other factors in battery cell manufacturing. So overall, we we think we have a a product that can help on many fronts to propagate the uh, adoption of uh, of battery technology, which is definitely going to be needed because the electrification is coming and being more and more widely adopted in in many different industries, right? And the car industries is probably the one where we've seen the widest adoption so far, but it's going to have to expand into the grid and into people's homes. And in almost every single uh, industry, uh, everybody is talking about how we can work more sustainably, utilize the energy as best as we can. And batteries is part of that solution. So uh, so that's what we want to help with uh, in, in this world that we live in. So. That's amazing that you've solved that problem of batteries catching on fire. That's awesome because it, it is one of the big reasons for a lot of people and for the safety of everybody as well, too. That's just awesome. So what kind of supply chain challenges are you solving? Because I think there's even more to this story. <laughs> yeah, there, there absolutely is. So uh, today there's a lot of talk both in Europe and the US about ensuring that our societies have equal access to this battery technology to make sure that we don't lag behind on development. There's been a lot of dominance from Asian players uh, over the past 20 years, uh, naturally because they started focusing on developing battery technology earlier than what we did. But now we're seeing that they're starting to get a, a big adoption. A lot of uh, new battery cell uh, manufacturing plants are being announced, and that is obviously a very good thing. Uh, but it's also important to understand that it doesn't help to just establish a battery cell manufacturing plant. You have to still source all the materials and all the components that you need to build these battery cells will also have to come from somewhere. And for us, focusing on the separator part of a battery cell, that is a component that is almost exclusively being manufactured in Asia today. So by setting up shop here in Europe and potentially the US as well, we would be part of kind of helping the transition into a self-sustainable uh, manufacturing environment in these two regions, which are dearly needed, to be uh, <laughs> quite frank. What about the IRA Act? here in the U.S. and establishing, we obviously want more battery operations here. Has that presented any challenges to you? Well, it's both a challenge and an opportunity, I would say, right? It's, uh, Europe has always been very good on funding research and getting companies ready for the commercial stage, but there's always been a lack of support on strategic initiatives in the post-commercialization phase. And this is where the IRA came in and kind of rattled the tree a little bit here because the subsidized that you will get in the U.S. are uh, are a bit different. Uh, they, they can actually give you production tax credits uh, that will help you during your critical initial years of uh, manufacturing. Uh, now, I'm not saying that we have to have subsidizes to be successful in this industry. But for these very critical industries that have to succeed against the competition of the Chinese and the uh, other Asian players, uh, it's probably a necessity in order to build up an industry. It's not going to be the first industry that has been built in this way, I, but I think it's just been a long time since 
it was last performed. The oil and gas industry had a similar uh, case back in the 70s, at least here in, in Norway, right? Where a lot of subsidies helped to build it up and then you turn it over to the companies and then they can run it on further. So for us, it's um, maybe the biggest challenge with the IRA is that we actually have to look at two commercialization scopes at the same time. We, we can't ignore the fact that setting up shop in the U.S. is something that should be on our radar. But then again, that also drives us to adopt to the to the market faster in the U.S., right? And helps us uh, be on our toes when we're uh, considering where we should be setting up our first uh, large plant for manufacturing our technology. So all in all positive, I would say. I know your operations are set up in Norway and you just talked about your plans to expand. One of the things I really want to ask you about is a lot of startups struggle. So they have this great invention and then it goes to mass production and then they underestimate it and it fails. What are you doing at ZNL to ensure a smooth startup of your operations? So basically one of the first things we did was to make, make sure that we have the best partners that uh, can help us do the scaling. Like we've been in dialogue with Honeywell, we've been in dialogue with Schneider Electric. We are been continuously been in discussion with these partners that can help us uh, because we are good at what we are doing, but there are always somebody better, you know, in automations or in in the ERP systems or the CRM systems. So, we, so that's one of the key things that we saw from the beginning, from a learn from a, other startups because this is my second time around. And the first time I did everything this myself, but this time I thought, no, we need help. We're going to make this smoother, better. Benjamin, he comes from the oil and gas industry where their supply chain is totally different. So that's one of the key things that we see. Of course, hiring or having the, the best people around to help you succeed is the key, I think. I think uh, what Jan says there is very important, right? The choice of doing this as a partner-based approach is quite important to us. In all the things we do, we, we try to find partners that are good in the things that they are experts in. And then we have the core competency in, in us. It's something that we have been doing and something we will be continuing to doing until we are successful. It's not like that you are an expert in accounting just because you have a startup. It's, then it's better to actually hire an external accountant that can help you do this because you save time then as well, not sitting there going around and trying to learn something you've never done before. Right. So I think that's the the main thing uh, to, to just do what you're good at and let other people do what they are good at and then you collaborate and yeah, it's a little costly, but then again, you succeed more often than not. Wow, there's some wisdom right there. There it is. But it, you have to get over yourself, right? You have to really understand that you have to come to accept that you don't have all the skills. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to do that they underestimate the task, they underestimate what's involved, and then they try to do it themselves, and then they get stressed out and they failed. So this mindset that you have of, look, we need help, we need partners who are better at these things than we are, you are the integrator, you have the ultimate technology and the product, you're going to put it all together. That, I believe, will put you light years ahead of other startups because that's why a lot of these startups fail. I've seen it even myself in my own business, this question of whether or not to outsource something because it's a, there's a money factor. There's a pride factor, but there's also a money factor. You've got to have the funding because you t there's this tendency to say, oh, I'll just do it myself. 
Yeah, we, we experienced the same in my former company. Like we, I used three months doing this uh, legal stuff and I had to hire a lawyer and, and it cost like twice the price it should have because you need to clean up everything I did wrong in the beginning. So uh, I learned the hard way, basically. So that's why we're doing it the best way. And that's why me and Benjamin is collaborating as good as well, because we have the mind, same mindset of how to set up this business and how to get help where you need help. One of the other areas I know that's a challenge to a startup is managing your suppliers. I know initially in talking to startups, a lot of times, maybe they don't have the volume, so it's difficult to bring new suppliers on board. And some startups have actually failed because they weren't able to manage their suppliers correctly. So what are you going to do in your startup to really manage your suppliers? We're kind of coming back to this partnership structure again, because when when we're now in a scale-up phase, we're going into a pilot and then going on to a larger-scale manufacturing plant. What, what we're telling our vendors is that we don't want you as a vendor, we want you as a partner. We want to buy your lab-scale machine or your pilot-scale machine because we see that you have the ability to also deliver this larger-scale, uh, gigascale uh, machine that could serve us in a couple of years down the road. So what, what we tell them is that we want help from you guys to choose the best machine for this phase so that we are successful in the phase we are. And our, our job in that process is to tell them, be very specific on what is the wanted outcome of the pilot. What, what are we trying to achieve here? Well, we're trying to improve manufacturability, for instance, right? We're not trying to produce as much as possible in that phase. But by doing the, call it the least amount necessary, while still being able to prove it to be uh, scalable, and then letting our, our vendors know that, then they will know that, okay, as long as we make this successful in this pilot plant, they will be very likely to be chosen in the Giga plant. And that the, the revenue they can get from that is significantly higher than what the revenue from the uh, just delivering to the pilot plant is going to be. So we take the same approach there as well, right? We, we make sure that we get a team behind us. It's not just us. It's, it's all the different vendors from the legal team that we're using to the raw material vendors that we're talking to, to the uh, machine builders. We, we all give them the same story. And make sure that if, if you want to deliver to us, this is what we need you to be a part of. And so far, we've been quite successful with that. We've seen a lot of leniency on uh, from vendors that they are willing to help us. They are, they are willing to stick the extra uh, hour in to make sure that we actually get what we need and not what they would like us to buy if we were just another customer, right? So... I think for us right now, it, that's a very uh, livable approach as a startup because you build a lot of trust and relationships with your vendors. I agree. And I love the mindset that you have and the partnership approach. It's absolutely the right thing to have. But more bringing it down to more of the, the nuts and bolts level, you have to understand the capability of each one of those partners from a manufacturing perspective and running a pilot and ramping up to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of parts and components or whatever the, the unit is, is vastly different. And when startups ramp up, we've seen that startups feel like, well, you know, we just ramp, right? We'll just go from 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 in uh, a month and we'll be good, right? Yeah. Uh, without recognizing all that 
research and validation of the process and going through an initial sample and checking the the process capability, all of these things have to happen. And having a system in place that communicates demand effectively, all of those things have to be in place. What are your thoughts around that? Well, we've recently partnered with uh, an EPC firm that has a pedigree from building large pharmaceutical automated production lines, uh, hydrogen electrolyzer plants. And we did the grunt work initially to find our, call it example vendors who we want to talk to. Some of them are already kind of categorized as strategic. And then this EPC provider is definitely on this partner list, right? It's one of the top strategic partners we have. And with together with them, we, we tell them, okay, you guys have, have done groundbreaking work in automation in the past to make sure that a plant will be successful in various different business areas like industries in pharmaceuticals or in thin film production. And we have a combination of those types of processes in our product to be made. So when we talk to them, we, we tell them that you go out, you take over from now as an EPC provider and deliver us a turnkey solution where we are on your team and you are on our team to make this work, right? Then it's back to the partnership. But, but I understand what you mean, right? That you you really need to know the ins and outs of your process. And you, Jan, you have a lot of experience in this from, from your former company, right? And where are the pitfalls when scaling up? So... Yeah, and that's also some of the things that we're looking at right now, like going for the ERP system, have all these nits and bolts uh, already in the systems, right? Because in my former company, we didn't do that. We waited like a couple of years. We did what you just said, and we learned the hard way again. And we used like one year and three months just going into the starting this process with the ERP system because it's easier to make the system when it's 10 types of uh, bits and bolts, not 10,000, right? Because then you're spending a lot of time, a lot of cost doing that part. So it's important to, to start as early as possible. And just as you scale the system, as long as you're scaling the business, because then these two things are, are aligned. And also on the, on the partner side is that we early saw that we need to be in alliances. That's why we are part of a member of the Upsell Alliance. We're looking at the NotBot in the United States to make sure that we have these partners around because it, like me and Ben, we're going to the NotBot convention in February in, in Carlsberg, California. And then we will meet up people that have done the same thing that we're going to do the next six months to a year because they have the experience. And then you can just talk to them. How did you do that? What's the pitfall on that part? And of course, you meet these vendors that are experienced to talking to companies like us and are willing to help because we are on the same boat, right? We're sitting there and maybe having a drink after dinner, just talking and then we have discussion, but ah, I can help you, but that I know this guy or I know this woman who actually an expert on that process and she can help you out. That's also an important thing, I think. You know, we also find too with startups, a couple areas for technology that they like to look at too is a supplier relationship management tool because tracking to what Jan said, everything about what that supplier is doing, their capabilities. And then we also find that a lot of our startup customers look at the quality side too. Obviously, that's really super important as well, in addition to the ERP. So that's great that you're already thinking about that because I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong because as you start to scale, you need tools that can help you see where your position is immediately. So that's great. Switching now to the customer side, how are you managing requirements? Do you see them changing or how is it working on the customer side 
So on a customer side, also people are coming to us because they see we are solving uh, one of the major headaches in, in the battery industry because of the fire hazard and, and uh, short uh, circuiting and uh, thermal runway. So they see that our product is really, really exciting. And of course, we also know that there is a, a track before you are signing a commercial deal. That's why we, we have a process there. Also, the first thing we do, we sign the NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements. We send uh, maybe an LOI. Make sure that we are in discussion. If everything is in up line, then we go to the next phase, which is the test contracts. And the test contract is a, is a contract between us and uh, uh, the customers because we want to own the narrative, right? We want to make sure that when you're testing our product, you're actually testing it the way it should be tested, not the other way around, the way they think they're going to test it because then it can be a misunderstanding and they can not get the results that we want them to do. And that's one of the key things that we're doing. And we have test contracts with several European players and several United States uh, players in the battery industry. And, and we see this works quite well to own the narrative and own the discussion. So like me and our technical director, Talat, when we are going to sales meeting, I usually take him with me because it's important for their engineer and their research team to actually meet our research team and our people that know how so they can, because it's a tribe language, basically. That's just how it is. And, and they can discuss and then they can ask this question instead of going around sending 150 emails back and forth, back and forth. But it's just easier to just be there and talk about it, basically. Well, Jan, you've got experience. This is not your first rodeo, as they say, and that's great. What's the one piece of advice that you would give to a tech startup that's thinking about scaling up right now? One thing, just one thing, what would it be? Don't be afraid to selling the product in an early stage because the value proposition, just talk to the clients, talk to the customers, get the feedback, and then you can iterate. Because as I see, it's a lot of engineers, and I was a little bit like that in the beginning also. I just a little bit more tweaking, a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, and it takes a lot of time. And in the worst case scenario is that you've been tweaking on the on the lab so much that somebody is already out the market with it. Type of same type of solutions that you are. So just don't be afraid to talk to the market. And I see from a from an investor standpoint, because I invest in companies also, the US startups and people who work in the US are hundred miles in front when it comes to the marketing and sales selling. We Norwegian guys, we're a little bit cautious. We don't we're a little bit more afraid to sell the product. But what if they say no? Oh my God, what happens then? It's just let them say it's okay to, to to say no, but then again, they could say yes, right? This could, oh, hallelujah, this is the best product ever. Where have you been all my life? That can be a thing, right? You know, you bring up an excellent point. And I also lead an organization called Global Welsh, because as you know, I'm from Wales originally. And we were talking about how to help Welsh businesses uh, export into the US. And that cultural issue of being bold, it's very sort of, oh, you know, but I, I don't want to offend anybody. And what if it's wrong? And what if it doesn't work? It's more of a cultural thing. Whereas in the US, we're like, okay, let's go talk to the customer. This is the best product ever on the planet. Now give me some feedback. Yay. Okay. You know, it's, we're very bold and like in your face and other cultures are not. So I think that's a very valid point. Thank you. Benjamin, one piece of advice as the CEO, one piece of advice to a tech startup company, what would it be? Well, as the CEO of the company, you have to kind of wear all the hats. So 
I would recommend any CEO of a brand new startup to make sure that you find some good people around you that can do the tasks that you probably want to do yourself and that you can trust that they will be able to perform them so that you can relieve yourself to have enough time to go raise money because you are going to be raising money all the time and you need to have time for that and you need to have time for all the tasks that comes with being a CEO because you need to be able to talk about your product and talk about your marketing and talk about your supply chain and talk about your strategy for HR and and all those things. So in the beginning, make sure that you have someone that can sell the product for you and make sure that you have someone that can make the product for you. And then you can have a, a bit more flexibility in your day to actually do more valuable stuff for your company because there's going to be a lot of administrative stuff that will eat you up alive if you don't have enough spare time for it. Great advice. Benjamin Jan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us so much. Thank you so much. It was great having you today. Are you ready to find the money in your supply chain? Visit www.autosupplychainprofits.com to learn how or click the link in the show notes below.